Hi, I'm Jennifer Zollett. And I'm Larkin Bell. Welcome to our podcast, A Female Lens. And we're here. We're back. We're here for another Within. Women in Film in the News. Yes, we are. Again this week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this week we're discussing Hollywood assistants. Mm-hmm. They're an open revolt, says the LA Times, and yeah. Hollywood assistants. Yes, and Twitter, more or less. <laughs> and the whole internet. Yeah. Yeah, we wanted to discuss this issue kind of for a couple of reasons, mm-hmm. and also a couple other ideas that this whole situation brings up. But basically... Um, Assistants have taken to social media and um, also the podcast Script Notes, Mm -hmm. um, hosted by Craig Mazin. 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 Oh, thank you. He was the screenwriter of Chernobyl and John August. He's the writer of Aladdin. Basically, on their podcast, they were devoting a portion of their time to talking about the situation, and a bunch of assistants had written in, kind of were sharing their experiences, and so they're kind of bringing this whole situation to light. Mm -hmm. Basically... Assistants are not getting paid enough. Um, health insurance is not a guarantee. What else? Yeah, and this is like assistance for the big companies in Hollywood. Like Agency the big studios. Agencies, yeah. exactly. Um, and kind of assistance, office assistance, and also like production assistance. And just um, how in the last couple of years, I guess on some Facebook groups, there's been assistant groups that have shared their wage information. Mm-hmm. And so they've had a lot of information and knowledge about that um and basically it seems like a lot of assistants are maybe not even paid minimum wage Mm -hmm. which is a big issue Mm -hmm. and then also their wages haven't increased in many many years so it's kind of hand in hand simultaneously with that totally there's also the issue of overtime Mm -hmm. a lot of assistants are expected to work overtime but not to report it yeah um expected to be on call basically they're expected to do a lot and don't get compensated. Mm-hmm. It seems like fairly for it from right. what from what we've seen, from what they've been reporting, and for what um, is happening, I yeah. guess, with these assistants. And that expectation comes from um, this pay your dues mentality. Mm-hmm. That as an assistant, as a newcomer in Hollywood, as a young person right out of college, whatever, you have to pay your dues in order to work your way up the chain. Right. And on one hand, it's like, okay, that makes sense, mm-hmm. right? Put in the time, put in the effort. But this seems like it's gotten blown out of proportion. also seems so magnified in this industry mm-hmm. um, where it's expected. Like, hey, yeah, you need to start out as an assistant to get to these other places, like um, a writer mm-hmm. or, you know, assistant director, a director, yeah. you know, all these different things. However, when you're not treated fairly slash right, slash whatever Mm -hmm. um how do you continue working in the industry what does that say about the pipeline of the industry and what are the implications of that yeah right and just kind of the threat of um well if you don't want to do it or if you complain or Mm -hmm. if you you know talk about overtime too much or you want more well there's a hundred people in line who are willing to do your job so i'll just find somebody else so i think that's also where this like fear is and assistants just don't have a lot of power so i think that's why it's important to talk about how they're coming together and just the more we talk about this the more power is given to them in this situation i think Mm -hmm. um 
but yeah, just that, that idea that like, oh, you're kind of worthless as a human being. There are a bunch of other people who will do your job and I can just find somebody. Yeah. And I think there was this, we'll link to this LA times article, but there was a story that I kind of feel like encapsulates a lot of the assistants and what they're going through. But basically this woman, Hannah Davis was a script court. She's now a script coordinator on an HBO show, Perry Mason. She was talking about, um, being a writer's assistant at a television network and one week, uh, the writers had gone over their lunch budget of $600. And basically the network accountant had told her that they were going to deduct however much they went over from her paycheck, which is absurd. Because she's in charge of ordering the food. Mm -hmm. Yes. She's in charge of uh, ordering the food. And she was like, Hey, I I was, uh, you know, just starting out. How am I going to tell a writer not to get extra salmon on his lunch, basically. Right. Um, the writers did pull together extra money in case they went over for lunch after that. But I just feel like that example where it's like, hey, here's a television network um, that is probably bringing in... like Millions and millions of dollars. Yeah, I was going to say a fair amount of money, but yes, exactly. <laughs> millions and millions of dollars. Yeah. And they're going to ask, make an assistant pay out of their own salary to make up for some, like, I don't know, $50 in lunch mistake. $50 of extra salmon. Yeah. Like, yeah, it just seems... <laughs> if that, it's a lot seems, of salmon. I know, truly. <laughs> um, it seems ridiculous, and it just seems like there's such a disconnect between the industry and then also, like, cultivating a new generation of people that are going to run the industry. Mm-hmm. And I think that is so tied into the pay, the dues mentality. And I think it also is tied into, like, well, who is expected to pay the dues and who can pay these yeah. dues? Who's able to, who's privileged enough to work for lower the minimum wage? There was data referenced in this article that, um, I think over 50% of these assistants get financial assistance from their parents. Right. Because they literally, nobody could afford to live this way with rent in Los Angeles and just everything else. Mm -hmm. You can't actually afford, um, these wages totally so So that brings together a whole new idea of mm -hmm. like okay well who is able to pay the dues and who literally are these people Mm -hmm. and of course the people that are getting this this parental support are probably upper class white people which again is like okay here's hollywood saying that they want to be diverse saying Mm -hmm. they want to be welcoming towards all people and it's like again so even at the lowest levels that's not we're not seeing that right it's like socioeconomically prohibitive Mm -hmm. yeah like truly prohibitive so i just feel like again there's a disconnect between well maybe even the hypocrisy really of these corporations essentially you know studios agencies you know whatever it is saying one thing and then not doing you know not carrying that out not grappling with like okay well how do we get to that point how do we Mm -hmm. make sure there is accessibility in the industry because we want these unique voices. We want these diverse voices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, another thing we had touched on earlier was just this idea of, I mean, the whole point of being an assistant is to work your way up the ladder and become something else. Like you said, like a writer, director, um, the idea of if somebody's hiring an assistant, oh, right, right, right. are they hiring them just as like a person who can, you know, copy things and run mm-hmm. for coffees and that's it. And they'll just expect them to do that forever. Or are they hiring them and asking them the question of like, Hey, what are your goals? What do you want to do in this industry? And thinking about how, you know, as a showrunner, I could help you 
become a writer or become this um, and having that conversation. And I think that is also lost a lot in this, it seems, um, because assistants are staying assistants for a much longer period of time than they ever used to. It used to be like you were an assistant for one to two years and then you move up and you know get close to the thing you actually want to do. And now people are apparently assistants for you know almost 10 years in some yeah, cases. Yeah, there's a stasis there for yeah. sure. Yeah, it's interesting because it's like also that kind of makes me think about the whole idea of mentorship mm-hmm. and people that are older in places of power. Um, you know, you want them to be invested in this new crop of people coming to, you know, essentially take over the industry. And I think that's also touching on something that we've explored a lot by talking to all these women of like, yeah, that's why it's important for more females to be in places of power. I mean, because, you know, the data is showing that it's completely skewed. Um, but also just because, yeah, then, then women showrunners are then invested in other, you know, yeah. people that are in, you know, lower positions, you right, know, on that the, are just the starting out. Exactly. And so I think this is this topic while kind of on the surface, it's like, okay, the assistants are upset really is kind of calling, calling everyone in the industry to kind of examine like what's actually happening. Again, it's coming down to power dynamics mm-hmm. and how that is being enacted throughout the industry. Yeah. Mm. And greed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's I get mean, right to it. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. No, because you're so there right. is so much money in this industry yeah. and each of these huge companies, corporations, whatever studios, agencies have an extreme amount of money. So it's not that the money to pay these people isn't there. It's just, just this going toward to the, the CEOs or the, the executives, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. the people at the top. It's like yeah, and they don't want to re-examine or you know. Weird. Shift that that sounds like our world. Yeah, yeah. Our yes. country. Yes. It definitely in, parallels a lot of other mm-hmm. industries and yeah. yeah. It also just calls into effect. It's like wow. I just feel like Hollywood is always railing against what we see politically mm-hmm. um, or just in our culture. And it's like, hey, here's yeah. a chance to maybe right some wrongs and maybe... Set an example. Yeah, show a new way. Mm-hmm. And it's like, are we doing anything? Right. Walk the walk. <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah, Classic. <laughs> Love it. There's another, another part of this that we wanted to touch on, which was kind of the intersection of this whole situation and the hashtag MeToo movement mm-hmm. and basically just, you know, women existing in this industry. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, we kind of want to touch on how, I mean, this is anecdotally, I guess, just a lot of women that I know have been assistants yeah. and I feel like it takes a lot longer for those women to then like proceed to the next level than it does for men at the same level. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of it is because, um, you know, sometimes assistant jobs can be, uh, you know, it's like domestic tasks sometimes, like mm-hmm. running errands or um, doing somebody's dry cleaning, those types of things. Um, and those are often viewed as women's roles. And so if you have a woman in that job doing those roles, then yeah, it's a lot harder for if she has a boss who's a man to look at her and say like, oh, but you really want to be a writer? Let me help you become a writer. Mm-hmm. Because it's it's convenient to just, you know, keep it as it is. And it... It, the potential for blurring the lines mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. the kind of work is it yeah. can be more domestic and like right. kind of intersect with a person's uh, personal life the you know what the assistant does mm-hmm. then you have more opportunity for 
problematic behavior on the part of the boss, yeah. especially if there is that gender and power dynamic in play. Completely. And jumping off of that, that just made me think there was a, a thread on Twitter I saw a few weeks back. We'll link to it. Don't worry. <laughs> um, but it was a thread about basically assistance and emotional labor mm-hmm. and how they bear the brunt of, of all this stress that's occurring. And this woman, she was very articulate. I'm so sorry that the name is escaping me right now. But she was basically talking about how, yeah, it is a really stressful space. And often these people in power don't have another outlet mm-hmm. to explain exactly what's happening. Like sometimes even their partners might not understand the inner workings of the industry or their show or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So the assistants really bear the brunt of that so now they're assisting and also being like a therapist and yeah. all and a sounding board and working and a creative you know bouncer confidant off. Yeah, yeah there's so much involved in there that i'm like they should be getting compensated way more yeah <laughs> um but i think it's also yeah i think that whole facet mm-hmm. of it is really fascinating and also it's just like yeah these at the end of the day hollywood wouldn't run without assistance no like, if they decide to strike, not, what's going to happen? Like, if I don't even know if that's on the table. But it's just they are so essential to, um, yeah, the whole industry, you know, yeah, and yeah. how it goes. It's interesting you said whether or not they're going to strike. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, there's all this talk about how they're not unionized. Mm-hmm. And there's this issue because they can't join several of the unions because the unions don't invite assistants to be part of the unions. Um, some of the assistants have recently joined IATSE. But my question is, can you strike without a union? You know, it's sort of like oh, that's interesting. It sort of goes hand in hand, strikes yeah. with unions. You know, because like you have to all come together. It's really hard to make everybody come together and say like, hey, we're striking <laughs> on this day, yeah. on this day, yeah. or for this amount of weeks. Bargaining power, exactly. Right? And like lawyers are involved, so that there's negotiating. Um, yeah, on the well, table. I've not even thought about that. Yeah, so it's like they don't have any power. They're right. not unionized. They're not even invited to a union. And um, so they can't even strike. All they can do is, you know, talk about it like we're talking about it. Mm -hmm. And otherwise, it really is in everybody else's hands. Wow. Well, listeners. So we're curious. Like, we obviously don't have the answer. But um, we're wondering if you, the listener, have any thoughts on the subject. We'd love to hear them. You can email us at femalelens at gmail.com. And, um, yeah, if you're an assistant, you're awesome. Keep going. If you have an assistant in your life, I don't know, give him a shout out. <laughs> Buy him an extra coffee. Buy him an extra coffee. <laughs> Be gentle with them. Yeah. And now here's our interview with Gersha Phillips. Gersha is a costume designer who has designed for more than 30 films and numerous TV series. She currently designs for CBS's Emmy-nominated Star Trek Discovery, now in its second season. Her work on season one earned her a Costume Designers Guild Award nomination. She has also worked on House of Cards, Black Panther, and American Psycho. Enjoy! Thank you so much for joining us today, Gersha. We're really excited to talk with you. Well, thank you for having me. It's very exciting. <laughs> Yay. So we just want to kind of start at the beginning. Um, if you could tell us how you got into costume design, and was that always a dream or a goal of yours, or did you find it kind of by way of something else? Um, yes, I actually did find it by way of act- uh, something else. I wanted to do, um, I wanted to be a fashion designer, <laughs> and um, that was really the path I was on, and um, I had moved to Toronto to uh, study uh, fashion design. Well, they, you know, it's sort of like the art of fashion design and also um, 
uh, another like joint thing that you do there. Um, but um, I think is it theater or fashion? No, you know what? I think it is just fashion design. But I, I went there to study that, and and I got accepted, and I was going to go. And then when I finally was moving to Toronto, I realized I couldn't afford to go that seat that year. So I decided work. I started working for another company um, called Lana um, Low and Pope Designs, and I was in charge of doing their patterns and doing many different things for them. And as well as working for them, I went to this movie called Beaches, <laughs> and on the on the title card when the title card costume designer came up something happened you know Oprah says the light bulb moment that was my moment literally I was like wow that's I want to do that that's what I want to do and from then on I looked into trying to figure out how to do that you know um uh, what it what it was to what it was to be that it was really interesting because I didn't really have a full grasp but I kind of knew already because I had studied costume design in in the theater at, and at um, at University of Saskatchewan I took the theater program there so um, you do do a little costume design a little lighting design and everything so I'd done it there but never really put it through to you know the, the um, film and television um, departments and never thought of it that way and thought wow so this, that's how that all came about and it was just that one day and so what I ended up doing is I met somebody because I was also doing um, uh, designing hoopas and, and aisle decor for a wedding company that we would do and so at one of these weddings I met a, I met a, um, a, a boom operator called Moish and he, I, he was I said how do I get into film I really want to get into film and he said join the, go to the Canadian Film Centre and volunteer on a film and that's what I did I went and it's the Norman Jewison Film Centre in Toronto and I ended up working on a film called House. I met this wonderful costume designer called Antri Newson, who's now changed her name to Morgan Newson, but at the time she was Anne, and she taught me so much, and I went from being like a costume assistant to keying the floor, because the, the woman that had um, was doing that job had to leave early, so I got to do that as well. So it was really great, because I just got to learn so much, and it was such an amazing experience for me. And from there, I met some really great people, started, you know, right away I costume designed a couple shorts, and then, you know, join the union and, you know, you just work your way up and, you know, the rest is sort of, here I am 20 years later. <laughs> so that's the story. I know it's really kind of an interesting one. I kind of like it, but yeah. Beaches. <laughs> um, quick question about terminology. Um, what does king the floor mean? King the floor is like if you're like being the set supervisor. So they're the people that look after the actors and the continuity of the costumes on set. Um, and um, they're kind of like, the, that's the, you know, Obviously, the set is where everything happens. Not everything happens, but where, you know, it gets filmed. And so it's sort of like the last line of where the costume has before you can do anything. And then it's seen by the, the audience. So um, it's a pretty important position. And it used to be also just always done by men. I think they were called... Um, I forget the terminology that used to have a set master or something. Had a really interesting. I can't remember, but I will find out for you. <laughs> but yeah, there was a particular term because it was a, a male job, and then and then also and in L.A. they have um, in some other cities too. I believe they have a male and a female costumer, so the male costumers are with men and female costumers are with women. And then you can also have personals and things like that. But yeah, we have the set key, who's is what we call it now. So. Um, yeah, we don't know much about the inner workings <laughs> yeah. of costume design. If you can't 
know. Yeah. So we're interested, like, what is the creative process mm-hmm. of, like, costume design? Like, what happens when you sign on to a project, and where does that collaboration start? So basically, when you, the first thing that happens before you even sign on, you get a script. You know, somebody's interested in you for whatever reason. They've either worked with you before, or they've been recommended to you, or they're, inter- they're inspired by something they've seen of your work. And so you, you get the script, and, you know, it's really the outline of what you're going to do. It tells you basically what's, what era the, the, the piece is set in, who the players are, and where it's set, you know, in um, terms of the country or the, the city or town or whatever, royal, non-royal. So those are the things you look for, and those are the things that happen in the script. So from there, you start to, you know, as you're reading already, you're conceptualizing, you're sort of seeing what you want, you know, the world that you're going to be creating. And then you normally you would go and do some... Um, uh, boards, create some boards with some great visuals on it, ideally speaking, and you pro- you show that to your director, and you know sometimes you're also collaborating right away. I tend to like to collaborate right away with the production designer to figure out what their take is on it, what they're doing, so that I'm sort of in line with that, or we spark new ideas between us. Um, and then um, you know the director has their say; they put in what they're whatever they'd like to do or change whatever you do, and then from there on you design. If you're doing um, you know what we're doing, which is space. It's a lot more, it's, you know, I have to do a lot more research and a lot of, um, um, other things, you know, that just to go into that. And, and then you start doing illustrations based on the characters that you want to start developing and, um, and then we start building, and then we have fittings with our actors. Once they're cast, it's also interesting when they, you know, you first read something of a character, and then they cast somebody that's completely different than what you envisioned. So that also can change what you're doing and how you, you know, you approach your design work. Um, and even when they come, if they have more input and whatever, you know, what I mean, things always change. So it's a very interesting process. Um, but uh, yeah, so I think, and then you know, we build the costumes, we have fittings, and then finally they get shot, they get uh, to wear them on the set. And that's the journey, kind of. I think I covered everything there. Yeah, yeah. You know, we may have camera tests and things like that where we, you know, for instance, when we first did um, the, our first costumes for um, episode one in the first season, when we first camera tested them, they didn't like the, the, the costumes and I had to redo them all. <laughs> so that was kind of a really interesting process. And it's really helpful, too, because then you realize, because they realized at the time that the, co- the, the sets were punchier than the costumes. They were not, the colors weren't strong enough, so they weren't holding their own in there. So um, it, was, it was a good thing to do at that time. I think we did that in, like, October. So by, you know, then we didn't shoot till January. So I had a bit of time to put it together not a lot but a little <laughs> yeah yeah what are those so what are those notes like they're like hey do they tell you the set or they're like they hey, called we don't me like to, that day in particular I remember being called to set <laughs> and them asking me about the colors and you know we because we also had a change of um, producers at that time too so it was kind of interesting that we you know when the new people came on they had a slightly different take on it so it was like adjusting to that as well but yeah they tell you sometimes you get notes you know even on illustrations you know occasionally I think as this season in particular I did, um, oh, when I did the Theologians, um, my first um, direction was to lean into you know, TOS theologians who are characters that were the first aliens that were um, established in the pilot of of, TO, of the re- original series. And um, I did it, so I was a little bit more conservative than I normally would be, because I got this note, and then I got another note saying, Alex, actually, you didn't say anything. And usually you expect a reaction, like, within you, when you send your illustrations out, you expect a reaction within a, you know, 
four or five hours or something. Sometimes they're immediate, sometimes they're a little longer. This one took like a day, and then he finally just called me, which was great because you know I prefer that anyway. Um, but he called me and said, "Hey, can you do what you normally do, and let's see if we, you know, we might go back to this, but let's see what your other, what you know, push it a little further and so on." So then we pushed it a little further, and he loved the newer one. So you know, I think that it it happens because you know you're not always. Um, dialing into what they need necessarily so it's kind of an interesting process and the idea the, the bottom line is it's a collaborative process you know it's I can design whatever I want to design but if it doesn't suit the story or or what they're envisioning for a character especially if the character has a longer arc than what's written in the script that we're reading at the moment you know it helps they know it more so they can always put their input into that I mean sometimes they share it with me and I do know but sometimes I don't and they do so it's always interesting so but yeah it's a great it's an awesome um, business and a process to be involved in I have to say I kind of love it (laughs) what kind of technology is involved in actually creating a costume do you mean strictly for us or because we're different than a lot of shows because we do so much building like we build probably between depending on an episode we're building 80 to 90 percent of our costumes from scratch and then we do augment some other pieces so um, for us we're doing like our technology is we're doing like we're doing our own printing now we do do, we do some 3D surface printing here in LA with um, a company called By Design that's really great and they do like all the super suits, they work on all the Marvel movies and everything um, we do uh, we've added to our arsenal now some um, work with uh, making some textures to create the more alien looks to things so that's something we've been doing, working with Task working with sculptors that sculpt things mold them and then we create these different textures etc um, and then we're also doing stuff like where we're taking um, uh, textures and putting them on fabrics and then putting another fabric over it and heat heat pressing it on to create another type of texture. So just all kinds of different applications. Because I think, you know, the idea of creating new species is really, you know, you have to sort of think outside of the box. And I think that's, for me, where I'm always pushing to. And I'm always, it's really interesting now, the things I get fascinated by. Because I'm looking at textures, I'm looking at plants, I'm looking at all these things that, you know, you never really think of, I never thought of doing before but now I am because I'm looking for something that's different and otherworldly more otherworldly than than we've done already you know what I mean because you know the idea of repeating ourselves is not really that that great obviously if you're doing another species you definitely want it to have its own identity and its own um, personalities etc so you know trying to figure those all out have been interesting you know and then we use the regular things like we do so we you know we have um cutters and tailors and, and we do all those things as well we do a lot of aging and dying with our fabrics as well so um everything and every anything yeah <laughs> almost <Sounds like> it. <laughs> yeah <laughs> with a project as with as big of a name as star trek how do you honor the world that's already been created and seen by so many people while also putting your own stamp on it yeah that's a it's a that's a huge um question and also um challenge i'm gonna say you know i think in the beginning when we started um the uh, the mandate was definitely to go uh sort of more um separate sort of uh i guess um visuals and try to work on our own sort of world and then now um with our new with with the new um production team that we're working with we've sort of come back in line more with star trek and 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 um honoring some of those things even just in terms of re re um envisioning characters that were from the past you know we did the enterprise uniform we did telosians and vena um, I'm trying to think of other things we did. Um, even our Klingons by, you know, circling 
rippling back to bringing them with hair, bringing them in with the hair and and um, even uh, some of the facial structures that they had before, even though they're still wearing the full mask. So there's a lot of that going on. So I feel like it's you know it's always the, the starting point. You do definitely go in, you do the research, you look at it, you sort of get that into into your system, and then you sort of come up with something new. So I think it's I think it's you know it's 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 definitely challenging, but it's rewarding when you when you nail it and they're happy. You know what I mean? When the fans are happy because you feel like it's not only is it good for your your own self, but it's also good to see them sort of excited and thrilled about it as well. So, Can you tell us a little bit about your experience assisting Black Panther's costume designer, (laughs) Ruth Carter, who won the Oscar for costume design last year? Um, well, first of all, I didn't assist her. Oh. <laughs> no, well, I mean, I did in the sense that I, I helped her with research. Okay. So she, I was in Italy. Um, I had just finished this miniseries and was vacationing in Italy, and she called me and asked me if I would be interested in researching for her. So that's what I ended up doing. And it was really cool, actually, because I got to research so many things that I hadn't really delved into before either. And I actually was, you know, being part of it was kind of amazing because I was so excited about the show in itself and wanted to be a part in any way I could. So it was, it was really wonderful. And this would have been my fourth time working with Ruth. So, you know, we've worked together in the past before. I met her, like, in 95 on a show in Toronto that she came to, She was a consultant on. And she was in town for three days and, you know, worked her magic. <laughs> and so that was really great. But, yeah, um, you know, it was a really cool experience. She would feed me certain things that she needed me to, to, to research. And so I was doing things like... Um, um, black uh, futurism, Afrofuturism, um, um, uh, female warriors, you know. So I wasn't even just doing um, African necessarily. I went to like the Greeks and all of the other different people and found out all the stuff that I hadn't, didn't know about, which clearly I've now completely forgotten about. But <laughs> there were some really great things that I found out and some really wonderful. Um, you know, besides Joan of Arc, who's the one you always think about, but there was some other, I think her name is Bodica, I think it's one woman's name, and there's some other one, one, one amazing women that did some great things back then. And so that was really cool. And then um, I happened to, then I went to some museums in Italy and took photos for her, and then I was on my way back to Toronto, because then I got Star Trek. So on my way back to Toronto, I um, stopped in at London and went to the Somerset house and took armor pictures for her and things like that and sent her. So yeah, it was a really cool experience, I have to say. I really liked it. I actually could definitely do that as a thing. As a researcher, I don't mind at all. It was quite fun. Um, And hopefully I'll get to do it again sometime. But no, Ruth's amazing, and her talent is beyond. So it was really great to work with her and and to have known her for so long. And she's a great um, mentor and um, a friend, actually, that can say that. So that's really good. Um, I'm curious with something with, so when, you know, with Black Panther, it is so much of the world building and kind of what you talked about with Star Trek with the world building. Like, what do you look for when you read the script? Like, what are some clues that you're like, oh, here's what I'm going to use to, like, build the, the visual language, like, via the costumes? I think, you know... Like I said before, the setting, you know, helps a lot. Um, uh, the story of the person, like the actual character that's in it, what they're going through, what they're doing, that really informs how they're reacting to things. Um, sort of those are the things, right? Those are the cues that you look for, and that's what helps you when you're, you're doing what you're doing. And two, the other thing is amazing is, is to go into the art department and walk through what they've done, because they're really, most art directors or production designers tend to do a really wonderful visual walls of things where you can go and look at what they're doing so you get to look at the sets and they print them in nice larger images than just looking at your screen so it's kind of always really nice just to walk through that just to get more um, inspiration for what you're doing
doing and making sure that, you know, the colors that you're choosing and the ideas that you're doing are going to work. And the other thing I used to love to do when I started on, when we were doing Discovery, was as the, as the sets were being built, I would walk through the sets, especially the best, the most amazing set was a sarcophagus ship. Like, it totally was a stunning piece of art, the way they built it, what it looked like when you're on there. You were just, I was in awe of it every time. And it was right by our offices. I spent a lot of time walking through there and just, you know, getting it all in. And that really helps. So it's, it's um, you know... I think it's layering everything that you can, right? It's um, especially with the world building because you want to sort of create. Um, you want to start seeing that more. You know, as you're reading, you want to visually be able to see it and understand it. So, as much layering as you can give yourself as possible. You know, when I do period, I usually like I'll do a lot of display things on the wall as well. But this is a little different when you do sci-fi because you don't necessarily have access to that world because it's so imaginary. So you don't really have the visuals for it until the art department starts um, creating it. And the other thing I do is I'll watch a lot of sci-fi films, you know, or the genre that I'm in. I'll watch a lot of films and TV around it. The only thing I've completely not watched is no Game of Thrones. <laughs> because I am a bit of a sponge, and I feel like I do, like, absorb, and then it comes back out, and I'm trying not to do any of that. So it's been something that I've actually really tried to be careful with so that you don't watch anything in the same too close to the genre that you're doing or too close to what you're doing so that you can sort of, you don't, you know, emulate it or bring it into what you're doing as well yeah it's cool how like experiential that research Mm -hmm. and yeah discovery is yeah no it's really great actually so you've costume design for both films and television series Mm -hmm. can you talk about the similarities and or differences in your process and approach to both and do you have a preference for either I actually think there's really not that much difference that's what I've determined now (laughs) and actually have for a while because I did you know even things like I did um, the secret life of Marilyn which was a mini series and then I did um, uh, a movie two two movies in the same era you know I did Miles Ahead and then I also did Life um, and they were you know around the same time and they all took the same amount of work you know the difference is the Marilyn one was actually more work because we had to do 90 some changes for, for Kelly's character for Marilyn so you know having to do that much for one character is a lot but even I think when we did Miles Ahead I think for Don I had to do like 30 or 40 changes for him in that one you know Life was a little simpler because it didn't have the same um, it didn't have any montages per se we just lived in that one little time so um but I feel like for me personally I do I always say I love film better um in terms of the process it's because it's a it's a director's medium so you get to work with one person one-on-one more than when you work in film you work with producers and it's a, a team of people so it's a little it's like you know a little bit more like designing by committee whereas um I find film is you know, it's more one-on-one. Although, I mean, if you're doing something like the Marvel ones, I imagine that they are a committee, and I haven't had that experience yet, so I don't know. Um, but um, there's just something about film that is just a slightly bit more grat- gratifying to me, I will say. But I, ha- I mean, I say that, and then I'll say now that I've done the Star Trek. This, it's there's nothing that's been this gratifying because I've never been able, I've never had the opportunity to be this creative, and also just let my mind sort of go as to where, it, you know, as to what I can come up with and, and how. What you know, I don't even know how to articulate it, but it's just a matter of being as free as you can, so that you can absorb and and put out something very different that nobody's seen before. It's always trying to reaching for that, you know, those intangible sort of things. So um, I think, um, yeah, I mean, I there I. T- 
at this point, I'm going to say that they're pretty much equal. <laughs> but um, I think there's maybe like I feel like if I was working on a Marvel film, I think you'd get more money. But then I'm, I, you know, in talking to Ruth, it's like no. So I guess it's like not necessarily. You know, I mean, everybody has the same struggles. It feels like, and I think that um, the pay may be a little different. <laughs> <laughs> I think you know the other thing is film. They do give you more time usually. You know, and but I, I also will say our show where we've been very lucky and they've been very understanding and um, and and good with things like that. You know, um, we do jam more into my time. I feel like there's a lot going on that, but um, uh, I think for television, this experience has been pretty a pretty amazing experience. I will say that. So. What would be your dream project to design for? There is a really a, a project that's out there that I've sort of heard about that I'm sort of super excited about if I can even, you know, get into it. But somebody, a, a production designer mentioned it to me, actually. Um, so we'll see. But it is something similar to doing like a Black Panther. But so it's that idea. And I think that, you know, that sort of idea of world building, um, now that I've tapped into it, I'm like, wow, this is such a great thing. I mean, some days I do say, oh, I wouldn't mind just going and doing a, um, a contemporary <laughs> <laughs> a contemporary movie like a little love story or something it would be kind of romance <laughs> just just for the you know the brain break but um i probably would always want something that's a little more um, um challenging but yeah so well, we'll, we'll manifest that for you we'll, <laughs> thank we'll, you we'll, i like we'll that. Be putting that out into the universe i'm trying to actually yes. <laughs> what keeps you creatively inspired when you're in between projects uh, let's say I love fashion. So I mean, I, <laughs> I had this argument with my cutter about fabrics and textures and f uh, fabric and uh, fashion. And she goes, "You like fashion more. I like fabrics more." And I go, mm. <laughs> "Anyway." But basically, um, uh, one of the wonderful things I got to do this year and last year was I got to go to um, uh, Couture Fashion Week in Paris. Um, Iris Van Herpen or Iris Van Herpen invited us last year, and this year I went again. And um, the lovely Michelle Yeoh helped me out with getting to see some other shows so I ended up going to see the Dior show um the Chanel uh, show the last one of Karl Lagerfeld's couture shows I got to see um Gal Pay and um Schiaparelli. so they were all very different and all very amazing and that sort of thing is always super inspiring it was the first time having getting to see so many of them which was really great um other things I like to do is travel which is why I was in Europe <laughs> after because I had actually just finished working in Romania and when I was while I was working in Romania we did go like I ended up going to Italy um to Rome um Barcelona and uh um Prague just because I went to rental houses actually and they were all in these fabulous places so I just had a little bit of a touch of those cities but then I knew I wanted to go back to Italy after so I spent like about three weeks in Italy afterwards um, just hanging around seeing you know all the beauty that's there and because I was born in England I was sort of am a little more used to that sort of the architecture and, and, and those amazing buildings and you know being in North America you're a little bit deprived of it unfortunately but um, you know I go to museums and um uh, spend some time in nature nature and um, um, anything that's sort of like a feast like I love to go to all kinds of galleries and see everything ideally I would love to do more reading <laughs> but um, that doesn't happen as much as I'd like to but yeah I'm just curious about this whole, the, the idea of textures that's not something that like registers in my brain a lot uh -huh, uh -huh. so I'm curious like when you're experiencing the world like what draws you to a certain texture and like what draws you to a texture communicating a certain thing about a character or an emotion 
I think, you know, I, I remember dating this guy once and he'd tell me, you have to touch everything. Why do you touch everything? And I think that was part of it is I'm just drawn to the, the touch and, and what it feels like. You know, it's that, that ability to have that tactile experience. So um, I think, you know, it's interesting because I don't know what tells me that it's alien, but there's something that I like and I'm like, oh, I can go back to that for that. You know what I mean? Because I'll just, I keep looking through, like I'll go on Pinterest or I'll find go on Google and just look at many different images and things like that and start putting them in little categories. So it's an, I, it's an interesting thing. And I think, um, you know, there are characteristics that you do get when you, when you think about the species like Klingons, you know, they're militaristic. Um, they, you know, the idea was that they were, they were bigger than humans because they had double organs. So there were certain things that we were already given, that we were given through the script or through, you know, the, um, the information that's out there for them. But um, even, I think, I remember talking to Brian Fuller, who was one of our first producers, and I remember showing him fabrics I had pulled for Vulcans, and he said they were too too mundane, too boring, and I had to find something better. So I remember like that that journey. And it was interesting because, you know, I thought they were pretty good because they were what I could find locally. And I was like, oh, these are great, you know, and then I ended up having to go to New York. And then when you go to New York and go to, like, Mood and B&J and these stores that are, they've got, like, such vast amounts of fabrics that you can get lost there for you know I spent a day there like literally walking around looking at things and 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 touching things and just you know and I I think to me there's things I think of a more alien usually have you know they sort of have more alien characteristics and it's hard I can't I don't know how to define that really but it just is something that you know when you look at it and I do I have looked at actually because if you go into Google and you put um I forget what I wrote this last time but I actually put something in and then it brought up the word alien textures and then I pressed on the alien textures and looked at the and they did look alien. They had this sort of weird thing about them. And, and some of them were like brain textures or, you know, weird things like that. But it was just, it's interesting what you're, what people will say this is and what, what gets defined as something, as, as such thing. So, um, but yeah, I, I don't know if I answered your question. No, you totally <laughs> did. Yeah, that was fascinating. <laughs> but yeah, it is. It's a really, it's a fun thing. And, and also the thing is when the leather thing comes up because leather is something that they do make some really amazing textures with as well. And I think, um, you know, that's it's sort of really what's happening with those things nowadays is really it's really cool and fascinating because there's also the super smooth, which is what you think of for the future for humans. Anyway, that's how we do it. We sort of give it a more smoother, cleaner look. And then the aliens, we sort of bring in the more textured, rougher textures and things like that. And the Vulcans were more it's I'm just trying to think of how we did them there. I think there's there was always a sort of geometry to Vulcans, like this order and 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 um, but still with texture. And then the Klingons were sort of disorganized and disruptive so that was sort of like if I could put it into three different things that's one thing I would say so we end every interview with our rapid response segment three two one action (laughs) Um, so yeah you could just answer in a word or phrase that comes to mind okay so for three your favorite or most influential or memorable film the first one that comes to mind is In the Mood for Love I always loved Goodfellas just because it's just one of those ones that are great Two, dream person you want to work with. I'd love to work with Kate Blanchett just because I think she's so cool and amazing. I think I was really interested in working with Guillermo del Toro, but I'm also a little scared because I'm not good with horror movies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I kind of am in love with any of the Spanish cartel, is what I call them. <laughs> so I would work with Inaritu or um, Curran or any of those guys. They're all 
incredibly amazing and and so um their work is just i love what they do like the stories that they're telling are really interesting and different and um varied one best advice you've ever received you know, I, my mother always said, be the best you can be. You know, that was one of the things for us as children that we always had, um, you know, that we always had to strive to be really good at what we did and make sure we did the best job that we could do. And that's sort of a motto that I've stuck with all my life. So I'll go with that one for now. That's great. Praise be to my mom. <laughs> and action. What are you most looking forward to right now? Uh, I'm going to say an Emmy nomination. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> That would be really cool. And and, and like I say, it's always, it's not just for me, it's for my team. Because I feel like we've worked, they've worked so hard. I've worked so hard, but they've especially, you know, they back me up and they support me what I'm doing. And I'm always pushing and driving for these crazy things and saying, oh, can we do this? And they're like, oh, I don't know. But then we try and we get it done. And so I really want, I'd like them to get it especially because I feel like they really deserve it. I mean, I I don't think we can win this year because obviously Game of Thrones is going to get it. But if we can get a nomination, it'd be really lovely. Awesome. And lastly, where can people follow you or your work? Are you on social media? I am on social media. I'm uh, my handle is Gersha Phillips, basically. Very simple. Great. Perfect. <laughs> we have started a, um, a Star Trek costume design um, uh, Instagram page as well. Awesome. So you can check us out. What's on there the handle and, for that? I think it's Star Trek costumes i think is what they put it as cool <laughs> yeah that's awesome yeah we just thought we, we thought we'd do that because i didn't i feel like it's great to have it all be me but i think it's nice if it's a team too and then they can start posting some stuff as well eventually so it'll be good wonderful thanks so much for joining us today gersha thank you for having me it was fun thank you <laughs> you can find us at a lens.com and at a female lens on instagram and twitter You can email us at afemalelens at gmail.com. And you can download the show anywhere you listen to podcasts and on Apple Podcasts, where we'd love it if you left us a review. Our theme song was composed by Jesse Nelson. Our logos were created by Megan Cafferty. Elise Welch is our associate producer. And A Female Lens was created by Jennifer Zollett and Larkin Bell. 